Welcome to VMN Volume 3, Episode 13. The date is February 22nd, 2023. VMN is produced and transmitted from unceded Abenaki territory of so-called Vermont. Today, we will be having a continuation of the discussion that started with our grand jury resistance seminar. We have self-described punk lawyer, Kira Kelly, and we have Claire Glenn, who has been described as every prosecutor's worst nightmare. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Marina. So happy to be here with you. Thanks, Marina. It's great to be here. Good to see you. So I understand you have a presentation that will be useful for activists who are facing the legal system. And um, you can, I can give either of you the right to share your screens or you can just start talking. I think we could just start talking through it. And then if, um, if people who are listening to this are curious about the written visual of what we're talking through and they wanna ask you for it, we'd be happy to share that copy. Um, and it is, it is true that this is helpful for activists, but I think also really it's helpful for anybody um, we're all criminalized and targeted by the state, whether that's for our existence in a world that, um, you know, in a, in a society where poverty or blackness or indigeneity or disability or gender nonconformity are criminalized. We're also targeted for our resistance work as we've seen across the country with folks getting criminal charges uh, for Stop Line 3, for Stop Cop City, for the Vermont gas pipeline across the country, any, any kind of um, work that tries to create a just and equitable and livable society is is targeted by the state. So it's super relevant for anybody and everybody. And we can just um, dive right in from here if, if we're all ready for that. Yes. And I would add that people are criminalized for their housing status as well. The the person who whose brainchild this paralegal for activists uh, course was it is a former homeless woman. Totally. I can start with the first slide is, and we can trade off from there if that sounds okay, Claire. Sounds good. So legal self-defense is what we call this practice. Some people also call it know your rights. Um, I've learned from particularly other black movement attorneys who do this work that uh, legal self-defense is a more accurate reframe because the constitution, it's not really, they're not really our rights like that those rights weren't written for any of us and they're not really a magic shield. So you can memorize the fourth amendment, you can memorize all the case law and you can recite everything perfectly, but that's really not gonna be enough to guarantee your safety when you're interacting with law enforcement. Legal self-defense as this practice of building skills and building um, resilience against law enforcement repression is more accurately reflects that uh, at the end of the day, we also have to just give ourselves grace and um, really try to take care of each other because there's just no perfect way to get through a law enforcement interaction. So content warning for this conversation, we might be talking about police brutality and violence. Um, please don't subject yourself to this conversation in this format if it's not a way that you retain this information. And um, if you want to find a way to reach out and we can have this conversation one-on-one -on -one and not in a podcast setting, sometimes that's an easier way for people to talk through really crucial information if it's uh, triggering to hear uh, us having an academic conversation about really 
real brutal violence that people have to different degrees and extents experienced personally. And the other caveat I'll start with right off the bat is that we are existing in this world that's steeped in white supremacy culture, especially this society in the so-called United States. It's a settler colonial state. It is a place where we've been taught all of these things that maybe um, we're fighting against, but that creep into our movement spaces and even into this training. So as we're talking through this stuff, we're going to try our best to re reject these characteristics of white supremacy culture, like perfectionism. We're going to probably mess up. I'm probably going to start talking really fast when I get nervous, but I'll try to cut back on that. We're going to try to reject either or thinking and, and one right way and hold more nuance in the both ands. We're going to try to reject a sense of urgency and recognizing that there's so much content we could cover, but this is just one iteration of an ongoing conversation that we're having with each other and that can continue to ripple out in community. And we're going to try to reject power hoarding. So recognizing that just because we're giving this presentation or having this, like we're, we're facilitating, it doesn't mean that we're the holders and the keepers of all of this knowledge. And that oftentimes actually we might say things that, that run counter to your direct experience, in which case, um, please trust your gut and trust your experience. And just because we're in a position of monologuing right now on this podcast, doesn't mean that we're the experts of this content. We're just trained to be really opinionated by the nature of the profession and the training that we've undergone, uh, but not necessarily to be correct. So um, trusting trusting your gut and bringing your own experience into this conversation as well as much as possible. Yeah, and and just to emphasize what Kira is saying, you know, I, I do a lot of different work supporting folks who are not necessarily lawyers either in terms of legal self-defense or court watching, right? And supporting their loved ones and their community members as they are progressing through this very violent criminal system. And I find that oftentimes people in that space, they feel like they need to shrink themselves, right? The criminal system is so good at imposing its power in a way that makes people feel like they don't have the right to speak up and they don't have the right to have an opinion because they're not lawyers, they're not trained in in like these certain like legal things, right? And part of what we're talking about is to give people some of that knowledge and that vocabulary, but at the end of the day, I actually think that lawyers are oftentimes really poor judges of what is right and wrong because we are so inculcated in the system um, and, and you know, we become really immune to some of the atrocities of the system in a way. And that's, I think, something that Kira and I as lawyers both work really hard on uh, to not become numb to these atrocities of the criminal system. But at the end of the day, I, I really think like trusting your gut, especially as a non-lawyer um, is like the importance of that cannot be understated. And, you know, to sort of jump from that back to the violence of these systems that we're talking about, I think it's also important to make sure that we're framing this conversation as one that's rooted in abolition and ideas of abolition. Um, it's a baseline assumption of what we're talking about today is that police, prisons, law enforcement in any kind, um, including immigration authorities, they are all inherently and irredeemably violent. They do not exist to make people safe. They exist to protect power and to protect property. And for folks who are listening who are maybe not abolitionists, um, but want to learn more, there are 
you know, countless amazing resources on the internet, books at the library. Um, we could spend hours and hours talking about all of the amazing work that has been done um, to make abolition and the idea of abolition accessible. Um, but I think one thing that's really important for people to remember for now is that the information that we're talking about um, is information that we want to always be mindful of how it gets shared, with whom it gets shared. Um, obviously, Kira and I are talking today in a capacity sort of understanding that this is going out into the universe. And so we're keeping that in mind. And we have, you know, relative privilege as attorneys to be able to do that. But it's always just really important for people to keep in mind that what you share with one law enforcement agent, you should consider that you're sharing that with everyone and to just like, keep in mind as as you're talking about these ideas and thinking through these ideas with people in your community that you're having those conversations in safe ways. So what is legal self-defense? There's probably a bunch of different ways to define it. I like to think of it as an ongoing practice of reducing danger to ourselves, our communities, and our movements from law enforcement. And when we say law enforcement, we're talking about cops, we're talking about sheriffs, we're talking about prosecutors, judges, prison guards, federal immigration authorities, taking a really broad approach to who is law enforcement. I think of law enforcement in my head as anybody who gets paid by the state, um, so by either a federal or a US state government to put you in a cage or to take your autonomy away or to kill you, they're legally insulated from consequences what one thing I would like to to have discussed is who is a cop? Because in some cases your doctor's a cop. Some in some cases your therapist is a, is a cop. Who are are cops that you don't know? You wouldn't ordinarily think of as cops. Yeah. So thinking about therapists or doctors or even just like people in the community who don't understand how dangerous law enforcement are. Um, we, we have formal cops, um, but then we have people who are reporting to law enforcement, kind of acting as their agents. And whether that is a snitch, like somebody who took a cooperating plea deal, so that would be somebody who maybe got arrested, and then as part of their plea deal agreed to help the state um, criminalize other people, or whether that's, um, you know, I, I could like blather about some case law, the Tarasov versus the regions of California case where like in certain contexts, if like somebody can say that somebody's life is in danger, basically um, therapists or doctors become, um, you know, reporters to these state agents. And um, it can be really tricky to navigate and could be like a whole podcast in and of itself of just like, who is it safe to talk to? And that's why like something that a comrade said a couple of days ago that's really brilliant is like one of the best safety practices that we can do is to build strong relationships with each other because um when we're when we're not keeping each other safe we might be tempted to turn to authorities as this proxy for safety and that actually excavates the danger so really thinking yeah like in a world where anybody could be a cop it might be tempted to like close ourselves off and to retreat into suspicion but by building strong relationships of care and learning how to have generative conflict and give feedback and really learning how to like talk to each other about what our needs are and about how we're feeling um, makes us so much safer than, you know, 
being in a situation that is dangerous and then feeling like you have no one to call but the cops. So I guess back to the, I don't know, um, <clears throat> definitely keep asking questions or Claire, if you have anything to add, otherwise we could turn to a bit more of the um, key difference between law enforcement when we're talking about traditional state, uh, state and local law enforcement cops, municipal police officers, constables, as compared to federal immigration authorities, which would be Border Patrol, ICE, um, and USCIS, but they're like more desk cops. You don't really ever see them, even though they are technically part of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, but the two major considerations when you are doing legal self-defense is um, who you're dealing with. So is it is it a cop? Is it a private security? Is it federal immigration authorities? Um, but actually more important than any of that is like, who are you and what is your identity? Um, so I guess just really quick, the one main difference when you are dealing with immigration authorities as opposed to state law enforcement is immigration authorities. When you go through immigration court, the standard is so uh, much more corrupt even than criminal court. And a violation of a constitutional right in immigration court only matters if it's quote unquote egregious. So we have these, um, Claire calls them wishy-washy, which I think is really apt um, legal terms that are like, what is an egregious error? Like, what does that even mean? And basically it means that the judge gets to decide what is egregious or not. And it's kind of a made up concept and it's really up to that judge what they wanna define that is. And anytime we have these wishy-washy or discretionary terms, it's just this green light, this open door for racism, for classism, for transphobia, um, for all of these like oppressive constructs to creep their way into our law in a totally legitimized legal manner. So with immigration authorities, it is all the more difficult to claw a constitutional right back once it's been violated um, in the courtroom, as opposed to criminal law in a traditional U.S. settler criminal court. You can, you know, if it's documented, you can kind of say, hey, your honor, this right was violated. We got to suppress this evidence. And that works a little bit better in criminal court. But if you're dealing with ICE or Border Patrol and they're trying to screw somebody over really like out of the gate, preventing that from happening rather than documenting it, letting it happen and finding it later in court, because it's just almost impossible in immigration court. Well, I would just add to that, that family court is also maybe a middle ground or even, you know, sort of similar to the realm of immigration court where I, I personally have never practiced in, in family court, but I have a lot of colleagues who have done um, defense of parental rights. And the stories that I've heard there is very similar to immigration court, where you have a lot of wishy-washy standards um, that end up playing out in these really, really disparate and discriminatory ways. Um, and, you know, constitutional violations don't always result in the impact that you might think they would have in court, even when we're talking about criminal court, right? One of the most common things that people will say to me is, yes, I made this statement to the police, but I was never read my rights. Or yes, I was arrested and yes, this happened, but I was never read my rights. And that's the point where I explain just because a police officer didn't read you your Miranda warning or describe to you your right to remain silent under the Fifth Amendment, which is you know commonly shorthanded as the Miranda warning, that doesn't mean that your case just automatically gets dismissed. The courts have crafted very narrow legal remedies 
when people's rights are violated to avoid situations where people are, you know, quote unquote, able to escape justice just because the police messed up, right? And it's that sort of problematic thinking that has led the courts to really turn the, the excuse me, the Fifth Amendment and the Fourth Amendment into these Swiss cheesed rights where they have been really, you know, eviscerated in this way and this way and this way in a way that means you often aren't going to get any benefit in your case in criminal court just because the police violated your rights. Well, of course, you have the question of who are you dealing with? But then the other question that Kira mentioned is, who are you? And I think it's a, a reality that we've already talked about, right? The U.S. Constitution makes a lot of very broad sweeping claims um, that it the Constitution claims are protecting everyone, but how law enforcement operates in real life varies very much by projected and perceived identities. Um, and not just law enforcement on the street, but at every stage of the criminal process, we see these disparities playing out in terms of the decisions that prosecutors are making and the decisions that judges are making, the decisions that parole boards are making, all the way down from you know, one end to the other of the criminal process. So I think one of the best strategies at the end of the day, like Kira has already emphasized, is to trust your intuition and to adapt to the experiences that you are personally having and the experiences that you've had that inform where you are and how an interaction with law enforcement might go. Um, I also think it's really important to make sure that for people who have relative privilege, especially for white allies who have skin privilege, how they might choose to interact with police um, as a result of that relative privilege can often also put people nearby at risk who have less privilege. And I think that that's part of why it is so important to make sure that people are incorporating consent practices into every stage of the game, especially if you're in a situation where you can anticipate that you might have an interaction with law enforcement. You want to make sure that you're having conversations with your comrades about how you're going to go into that scenario. If you're in a situation where somebody is currently interacting with law enforcement, consent is still important. And after someone has had an interaction with law enforcement and they're dealing with the ramifications of a criminal case, again, consent doesn't just go out the window. You have to make sure that you're checking in with people because at the end of the day, Kira uh, has this great line in the PowerPoint that I just want to highlight here. We can't control how the cops treat us, but we can control how we treat each other. A question that we get sometimes when we do these trainings is like, what do you do if you are somebody who has gone through this legal self-defense training and you're walking down the street and you see the cops like harassing somebody? Um, or maybe, you know, the cops are just standing near a civilian and you're not sure what's going on and you're not sure whether that person feels unsafe. You're not sure whether that person is like uh, friends with the cops and they're just having like a chit chat. Like, um, and I guess if I, if I saw that, what I would do and again, like filter this through your gut and your perspective. Um, but I might kind of walk a little bit closer and assess the situation and see like, does it look 
really urgent. Like, does this person look like they're actively getting beat up by the cops? And if so, yeah, I would probably pull a phone out or just like try to immediately start filming because it just like um, is escalated to the point where you can't really have a consent conversation with someone who's getting brutalized. Um, if it's not at that point, I would probably walk up and just try to make eye contact with the person who the cops are talking to and do a discreet thumbs up. I might mouth or whisper like, hey, are you okay? Or just kind of say it quietly. Like, I don't want to escalate the situation. So I don't want to come in and be like, hey, are these cops being mean and like really bring my own heat into a situation in a way that would make it worse. But I would try to really just like come in low energy and calm and do a quick, hey, you okay? Do you want company or something like that? Um, but different people do it differently. Like there's um, other ways to have that quick check-in, but I would probably want to just make sure um, cause some people, they don't want the attention. Like they, they might feel unsafe having somebody else perceiving them even more so than they would feel unsafe, just having a interaction with cops by themselves. So we want to really try to prioritize the autonomy and consent of the person that's like facing that interaction in that moment. My favorite tip to tell people, uh, which I learned many years ago from a dear friend that I learned how to do these trainings from is that every time a cop tells you something, you imagine they start their sentence with the phrase, I want you to believe that. And then whatever it is that they're actually saying. So like, I don't know, can either of you think of something that a cop said to you recently? I can't remember. Uh, actually, every, every cop interaction I have is a blank. <laughs> I don't know if that's trauma or a resiliency thing, but it's probably good to not have a lot of cop memories. Um, so cops are trained to lie to get what they want, right? They go to school to learn how to lie. And it's not that we want to think that everything that they say to us is a lie. Like we don't want to play reverse psychology, but we want to just um, assume that everything they're telling us is crafted intentionally to like plant a certain belief in our mind. Um, trying to think, I guess, and this is not just true for cops, it's prosecutors, it's immigration authorities. Um, one time I was going through a border patrol checkpoint and I decided to not tell them anything. Like they ask you whether you're a citizen and I just didn't say anything. And they said, we can hold you here all day if you don't want to tell us anything. Like if you're not going to talk to us, we're going to hold you here all day. And so what they're really saying, and we insert that little phrase um, into the at the beginning of their sentence, they're really saying, I want you to believe that we can hold you here all day. Um, technically they, they can't. Uh, it was like 25 minutes, but they were, they were saying that because they wanted me to think that because they wanted me to get out sooner. Um, another common thing that cops will say is, if you do X, Y, Z, we will make sure that you're charged. Like we talk to the prosecutor and they take that into effect when they charge you. So like cops have no authority to negotiate your offenses or what you get charged with. If like you're getting arrested and they're like, hey, you know, if you confess, then we'll lower your charges. Like they can't, they have no, the prosecutor is the one that decides um, what your charges are and the cops are the ones that pretend they have input. Kira, hearing you, I thought of a couple other examples that are pretty common. One I have not experienced, but I've heard about that with international travel, people are now being asked to give over their biometric data and if they refuse, the Border Patrol threatens prolonged detention and things that they are not allowed to do that very explicitly, there are even signs posted that say giving your biometric data is voluntary, it's not required. 
but law enforcement at the border is seeking to try to coerce that information from people by threatening to detain them um, for prolonged or unnamed periods of time. There's a case in Derby Line uh, where a, I believe this person, gentleman is from, from Nigeria. He was from the Boston area, he drove to Montreal, coming back through Derby Line on the 9155 um, entry point, they pulled him aside. They pulled him into the building. They took his cell phone. They wanted to search it. He refused to leave the border patrol station without his cell phone. And he has been called into the Orleans County Court. They're, they're throwing the book at him, this so-called progressive prosecutor of Orleans County for trespassing at the border, border patrol station because he wouldn't. He wouldn't leave without his cell phone. Um, any thoughts about this situation? That's hard to say. I mean, I, I don't think that, we, you know, we can't give specific advice on like hypothetical fact patterns because uh, all of the horrible, complicated rules of ethics that I usually forget about. But uh, it is indicative of the fact that anyone can get charged for anything. And that um, when you are... Uh, I guess that's why it seems important to me to frame all of these conversations as like we're abolitionists because like crime and harm have nothing to do with each other. Um, and like crime is totally a moving target made up construct that is just weaponized by the state in order to control people's behavior and to suppress conduct that the state disapproves of. So it seems you know clear to me that like so for someone to get charged with trespassing for exercising a constitutional right, um, what are they, you know, what are they trying to do here? Like, and the fact that this person is, um, uh, you know, like coming in through the Canadian border back to Vermont as, um, I think you said a black man from Nigeria, right? So like these identity characteristics, would that have happened if that was like some white dude from Vermont? Um, who knows, but like the law should apply one way and gets applied another. And like, there's just abundant and really horrific examples of that. Um, yeah. And I think, I guess the other, like the other thing that this makes me think of too, is the importance of recognizing that um, border patrol and immigration authorities, they don't have the power to enforce state laws like trespassing. So even though border patrol wants to throw the book at this guy, they actually have to call the state and get the state to come in here because trespassing is a state law offense. It's not a federal immigration law. So this separation between what state cops can do and what immigration authorities can do. Um, so a state, a state cop or like, so a state trooper or local municipal sheriff or whoever, like cops, they can't enforce immigration laws um, and immigration authorities can't enforce traffic laws or trespassing or murder or any of these things that are typically handled by um, state and municipal authorities. But all that this means is that they work together. Um, and we've seen that this idea of what you tell one cop, you tell all cops applies across jurisdictions and departments. And we see in Vermont, migrant justice and the um, No Palomigra movement and rise in the welcoming ordinance campaign across the state of Vermont and New Hampshire has really done a lot of work on trying to put uh, mandate that there be a firewall between cops and immigration authorities because you see cops pull over somebody who um, they've racially profiled as Latinx, who maybe has like an accent that's not a Vermont accent, and then they call up Border Patrol and they um, just kind of work together to trap people and share information that way. 
there, there was a case in again in Orleans County where Border Patrol pulled over a woman for drunk driving, and they held her for like forty five minutes uh, until the state state police came. Uh, I'm not a fan of the local judge who uh, did this, but I applaud that he threw out the case because the uh, Border Patrol had no uh, jurisdiction to um, to pull someone over for drunk driving. Yeah, and I think that that gets to, well, let me rephrase that. I think that that exemplifies part of the problem with know your rights generally and why it's so important to frame it as legal self-defense. Because when it comes to law enforcement, they can disregard every legal right that you have. And in that moment, you really don't have very many recourses. It is a police get to act and judges ask questions later type of situation. And so, yeah, there may be a lawyer who can review your case and decide um, that they think you have some arguments to make about why your rights were violated, and they can present those arguments to a judge, and the judge can decide they agree with this lawyer or they don't agree with this lawyer. And at that point, maybe you will have some benefit to your criminal case if you've been charged. And on the flip side, that same lawyer or a different lawyer may decide that you can even sue um, to try to like get some money damages for your legal rights. And another judge can review that and decide, yes, I agree, or no, I don't agree, or yes, I agree, but the damage was so minimal that this person doesn't get any money anyways. Like all of these legal remedies are so ineffectual when you're thinking about how to stop a constitutional rights violation in the moment, right? No civil rights case will ever put breath back into George Floyd's body. And that is the reality that we are operating in and why it's so important to think about the broader practical realities because your rights might get you some benefit when you're able to get a case in front of a judge, but they're usually not gonna be a ton of help to you in the moment, if there is a law enforcement officer who's intent to do what they're going to do. Which sort of brings us to our second general tip for legal self-defense is that memorizing the laws is not at all as important as de-escalation. Because like Claire was saying, is the cops are going to do what they're going to do. And rather than, uh, you know, these magic shields that we wish the constitution gave us, perhaps, um, unfortunately, it's really just us managing the emotional experience of grown men in uniform. Um, well, any gender can be a cop, but uh, there's definitely some toxic masculinity imbued in that training, regardless of who gets trained that way. And we're just trying to keep ourselves safe. And that actually can best be done by um, employing these de-escalation strategies more so than just memorizing the magic words to say in that moment. So de-escalation, there's whole trainings that folks can take on this and also encouraging people to draw on their own experience that you already might have in the practice of de-escalation, dealing with friends or family or strangers or people who are just um, presenting risks to a situation and you're, you're trying to basically control the other person's energy or to diffuse negative, dangerous, violent, hostile energy um, through your own demeanor 
And about 90% of communication with a bunch of variation for neurodiversity is tone and body language. So the words that you're saying are way less important than how fast you're speaking, how open your body is. You want to have really open posture. You want to have low, um, low tones. If you are, um, talking, you want to make sure that you're not talking fast. You want to not move your hands a ton, have your, all of your body movements be slow, your hands open at your sides. Eye contact is, um, going to vary by your race and your gender presentation. Um, so that's a, you know, personal decision about whether eye contact is or isn't de-escalatory in any given context. Um, personal space is really important. If you get really close to a cop in particular on the side of their body closest to their firearm, you're going to get their hackles up. You're going to intensify their, um, they're going to be really activated. So keeping space and being on the side of their body opposite their gun, um, really trying to breathe, take deep breaths. And if you are knowing in advance that you're going into a situation where you're going to interact with law enforcement, do some grounding exercises, like do what works for you. Um, whether that's if you're in a car and you get pulled over and the cops coming up to your window and you are a person who just wants to take a couple deep breaths, whether that's, um, you're an attorney or a criminal defendant, you're going into a courtroom and you know, there's going to be cops and prosecutors all over. Um, and that's like putting on some calming music in the hallway, like whatever you need to do, whether you're, or you're going to a, a protest or an action and you know, cops are going to be there and you just like, you know, pull a friend aside in your affinity group and you just like, you know, take a deep breath and give each other a hug um, and take a moment to really check in with yourself. Um, all of that's going to keep you way safer. Um, no matter what happens, like that's the part that we can control. I love all of those examples, Kira, and even just hearing you talk about slowing things down and changing body language, I could feel things shift in myself, even in that moment. That was really cool. Thank you. I also wanted to maybe backtrack a little and just note one area that I also think law enforcement lies a lot that is related to something that we're going to talk about in a minute is when they are like, we can either do this the hard way or the easy way. And they're trying to frame things as like you as the person interacting with them can either be difficult or easy. And either way, you're going to be in trouble, but they're trying to pressure you to like, be a good, you know, upstanding citizen or whatever, or like upstanding civilian in order to comply with something that you actually don't have to do. So I see this very commonly in police who are trying to get people to make a statement or situations where police are trying to get access to something that they want to search. They want to search your vehicle. They want to search your purse. They want to search the trunk of a car. They want to go into your house. They'll say things like, we can do this the hard way or the easy way. And honestly, if a police officer tells me that they can do something the hard way or the easy way, I usually am going to say like, look, let's do this the hard way because I actually don't think that you have any right to force me to do this the easy way. But especially, you know, I found in a place like Minnesota where I now practice culturally, that has a lot of impact. 
I came up as a public defender in Prince George's County, Maryland. It is a majority black county where people have had a lot of very negative um, interactions with police. And there is a sense and a culture in Prince George's County of suspicion of police, of not trusting the police. They've seen their local law enforcement be sued time and time again for you know, decades and generations for the civil rights violations that they've had. And then I came to Minnesota and it's a very different culture here. It's a culture of go along to get along, of comply with authority, of be a good Lutheran and follow the rules and work hard and keep your head down and God will provide, right? That is the culture here. And there's nothing wrong with one culture or another, but I think it's really important to think about the way that that culture often I've seen gets exploited by the police in particular in a place like Minnesota, where they say, look, we can do this the hard way or the easy way. And good Minnesota culture tells me that I should do things the the easy way and I should comply with this police officer because I'm a quote unquote good person who has quote unquote nothing to hide. So I guess we can jump from there into practicing. Does that sound good? Sounds great. I think that's, I I would love to just like um, make a note on that because that made me think of of just like how it feels when you get when you're driving in a car and you see law enforcement like in their vehicle around you and you're like crap I've done something wrong like that feeling like um you know the oh if there's a cop there and I'm being talked to I'm wrong and I have to kind of panic and like redeem myself um and like how important grounding is to with like withstand that resist that and also that like there are ways to um push back on your rights that are like apologetic if that's what you need to do like if you are a kind of person and I think this is probably like people who are socialized femme and like to kind of respect and fear authority like it might be terrifying to assert your rights and if you want to craft your law enforcement response persona to be really like oh you know I'm really sorry but like I'm not comfortable with that and I don't mean any disrespect but I really just don't want to talk to you right now like if you need to say it like that um there's nothing wrong with you for needing to say it like that and I think the flip side of that too is like when we are in protest and movement spaces and we are like um, maybe in a multiracial setting and for other folks like myself with white privilege, like I do want to be careful how I talk to the cops in that setting because like I'm not alone, like I'm not the only person being impacted. So I want to be, um, I want to adopt a persona that's not going to make the cop pissed off because that is not going to come back on me. That's going to come back on my black and brown comrades in my immediate vicinity. If I escalate a cop, like I'm not the most likely person that they'll take their anger out on but I don't want to be like buddy buddy with the cop because like that can also feel like a betrayal if we are um in a movement community with folks who are like systemically and for centuries have been um much more directly and brutally oppressed even though cops oppress all of us regardless of um our identities but it's just it's more acute and so as someone who doesn't feel that as hard I don't want to like betray the people around me by like coming across like I'm trying to befriend this cop you know I think that there is not any validity in the action role of trying to like connect and convert bad cops into good cops at an action scene, that that's just like a betrayal of community values. Um, And you can see the humanity in somebody without attributing that to the uniform and, you know, like good cops quit, right? So if you're, if you are at an action, like really just trying to be 
careful about how your cop persona impacts other people. Um, I would I would never tell somebody um, like I would never tell a black or a brown or a native person not to escalate with a cop. Um, like I'm not going to try to like intervene. That's that's not violence. That's self defense. It's just hard to see it as self defense because the violence of police is institutionalized and therefore like it's so normal and accepted that it's almost invisible and all we see is the reaction. Um, I wouldn't try to do that, but I would like make sure that I'm not like, that's just not my place to contribute to that. So I guess cop persona is like an ongoing thing that we're all trying to craft and it's really hard to do. Like uh, it is really, really hard to be intentional and strategic about how our demeanor impacts cops. And so giving ourselves grace and just like committing to working on it together. I mean, I, the only real time I can actually remember dealing with cops is doing uh, public records requests. And I'm, I'm insisting on my rights with them, but I am always very polite in those, those uh, public records requests. And you can, you, there's nothing private about a public records request. They, if you FOIA that, you will get my response. And I post what I po usually post the whole conversation to, uh, to VT leaks. Um, I mean, I if I'm dealing with police in in public and stuff like that, I I'm very quiet. And I think to bring it all full circle, it boils down to consent and relationships and having abolitionist values that are informing the ways that you are showing up in spaces, because consent is so important. And some of the things like Kira, especially with what you're talking about of the different dynamics that can play out in multiracial organizing spaces, those conversations can sometimes be like challenging and uncomfortable, especially for white folks who might not be used to like showing up in a way that acknowledges their privilege. And yet that is so very important to do. And it cannot be like emphasized enough how important that is to be a good ally. And if you're building relationships in your community and you are putting down um, committed roots in the communities that you're organizing with, that is going to go a long way in having a really robust and meaningful consent practice that you're going into these spaces with. Uh, I can do, I'll, I can do the slide clear if you want to do the next one. Sure. Uh, so key phrases, if you get these into your muscle memory, that can be really helpful because when you're in a stressful situation and maybe you uh, kind of tend to just like say random things without much control over it, if these are in your muscle memory, then instead of saying something that's going to backfire or harm you later on, this will just kind of pop out of your mouth and you'll be like, oh, thank gosh, I practiced this over and over in the car by myself after I took that legal self-defense training. So key phrases to keep in mind. And it's, if you're in a situation where you're like, I don't really know, like, am I being detained? What's going on? What's the fourth amendment? Like, how do my rights apply here? Like take a deep breath and just think about a key phrase. So if you're, anytime you're interacting with law enforcement, a great strategy is to just try to end that interaction. And a phrase to make that happen is to say, am I free to go? Or am I being detained? Anytime a cop is talking to you, the best thing to do is to not respond. 
um, to not talk to that cop. So if you want them to stop asking you questions, you say, I have a right to remain silent. Um, and they might try to trick you into talking to them or make you think that it's in your best interest, but it really isn't. Like, do not talk to cops unless you are a police liaison or you are with an attorney. Um, I have a right to remain silent. Um, one of the situations where I can't have, don't seem to know of a way to avoid that is when I go through the border and tell me if I'm wrong, usually when I'm going in a car, usually to Montreal, I'm usually going to, I like to eat at Korean restaurants and Indian restaurants. And that's why I go to Montreal, because I like to eat. And it's when they ask, when I'm coming back into the country, they ask, what did you do? Are you bringing it? Well, full stomach, I, I ate at an Indian restaurant. And the thing is, we always talk, we always make sure we have our stories straight. And it's always about going to restaurants, which in a matter of fact is true. <laughs> Any comments on this? That seems like a great way to do it. Not going into a ton of detail. When you pass the border, obviously you do like it's, um, it's different than a pop-up checkpoint. So in Vermont, we see a lot of these checkpoints within 100 miles of the border where they just ask everybody who goes through whether you're a U.S. citizen or not. Um, and if you are a U.S. citizen, you don't have to answer. You are constitutionally allowed to just not answer their question. That can be a great thing to do, especially for citizens to um, flex that citizenship privilege to make it less conspicuous if somebody else who maybe is at more physical danger from interactions with Border Patrol also chooses not to answer. Um, to just say nothing at all so you're not even giving them like a chance to accent profile you um that's different if it's a pop-up checkpoint but if you're actually going through the border you are required to um you know present your documentation and answer just like really basic questions but sticking to like the bare minimum is a great way to do that um claire i'd be curious if you had anything to add i think that it is just so important for people that have relative privilege in one situation or another in situations where it feels safe and comfortable to exercise your rights. Um, it is a use it or lose it situation. And as much as I don't think we should be putting a lot of stock in the courts and I don't think we should be putting a lot of stock in the words of the Constitution. At the same time, I do think it is so important in a immigration context for people that have citizenship to exercise their rights and to not comply with the voluntary requests of ICE and Border Patrol in order to normalize that, right? And in other situations where people have relative privilege, to exercise your rights in a way that normalizes exercising rights so that it is not something that is inherently suspect and inherently criminalized, which is a situation that we're currently in. It is a common thing for people to say, why would I remain silent if I have nothing to nothing to hide? Why would I remain silent if I have nothing to hide? And the answer is, because you don't know how something is going to be used against you and you don't know how something is going to be twisted and you don't know how something maybe won't be used against you, but will be used against your comrade or your loved one. 
And even if nothing that you share gets used against you for the next person who chooses not to speak with police, you are normalizing that behavior in a way that benefits everyone and helps us all keep each other safe. Kira, you were saying, you know, you could say, I'm sorry, but I don't want to talk now. I seem to remember there was some sort of uh, criminal case that went up to the Supreme Court that says to exercise your Fifth Amendment right, you have to actually say I'm exercising my Fifth Amendment right. Uh, can, can you expound on that? So something shitty about cops and the opposite of the world that we're trying to build is that silence is consent for cops. So if you don't affirmatively say just the right thing, then it they're like, oh, cool, you consented. Like, unless I actually say, uh, you know, I'm exerting my right to remain silent or um, whatever, whatever, they, they're going to take silence as consent. I would say, like, if you can phrase it first, like it like if you're if you're nervous and you're like, I don't want to I don't want to escalate this situation. Like it could be a de-escalation tactic to say, hey, like, with all due respect, I don't want to answer your questions. All right. Um, if I get pulled over, sometimes I'll say like, hey, I'm happy to comply with your lawful orders, but I don't want to talk to you about um, anything beyond the information I'm required to provide. If a cop is like trying to chat me up about where I'm going or what I'm doing, I'll just be like, hey, you know, with all due respect, I don't want to talk to you about those things. And if they push, then I would say I have a right to remain silent. And you can kind of do this, like give them the first bit. And if they are like really making you say it, knowing that you have that um, key phrase word for word down and you can say that I have a right to remain silent, but doing nothing just gives them a green light to keep talking to you because cops treat silence as consent. And just to add some of the ridiculousness of the courts in terms of what they've required, there is a case where the courts essentially viewed somebody's request to see their lawyer, comma, dog, as a request to see a lawyer dog and thus not a valid request to have their counsel present during questioning, right? And everyone sort of knew that this person was using vernacular to say dog to refer to the police officer, like, hey, like, I want to talk to my lawyer dog, like, I don't want to talk to you. And everybody knows that that's what happened, right? But these antiquated, like, super, so privileged that they are on another planet judges viewed that as an ambiguous request for counsel. And so not only is silence consent, but sometimes an ambiguous assertion of your rights can be deemed not an adequate request for your rights to be respected. And that's why I still think it's good to practice these key phrases and to get comfortable with them so that when you're in a situation where your adrenaline is pumping and you're really freaked out and it's difficult to like think through in a logical way what you want to do, you have these things at the tip of your tongue in the back of your mind, like ready to go. And you can write them down too. Like a lot of different legal support organizations will give out little cards that give you a script. Am I being detained? I would like to remain silent. 
I would like to talk to my lawyer. Like that will be on a little card that you can have, or you can write it down on your arm if you're feeling anxious about it. Um, it's just really, unfortunately, the reality that we live in, that the courts are so biased towards police that they will tie themselves in knots to try to construe what is very plainly and clearly an invocation of somebody's rights to not be a privileged enough request because somebody used a plain language or common vernacular. So let's uh, <laughs> let's say them. Am I being detained? Am I free to go? I would like to remain silent. I want to talk to my attorney. I want to talk to my attorney. These are the. <laughs> I do not consent to a search. Um, sometimes I like to add, I'm not resisting, but I do not consent to a search. Like if a cop is, you know, physically interacting with you, you might want to just emphasize that you're not resisting, especially if there is somebody recording, like you want to, that kind of thing caught on recording can avert, a you know, charge about like resisting arrest or whatever. Like if you just can emphasize, Hey, I'm not going to physically stop you, but I do not consent to this. Um, and then asking, do you have a warrant? Let me see it. I think what Claire says really emphasizes like the importance of like, if you assert one of these rights, if you say one of these things and cops continue doing whatever it was that you don't want them to do, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're wrong or that you don't have those rights. Um, it might just mean that you should say it again. Um, and, you know, firmly and as confidently as you can, and really just trying to be exquisitely clear and Obviously, physical resistance against law enforcement can get really dangerous really fast, as well as bring you legal trouble later on. So that's the importance of this. I'm not resisting, but I don't consent to this um, type of framework where you're just you're not doing any like if you physically initiate contact with law enforcement or physically initiate contact with the side of a cop car or a cop bike or a cop horse, technically, that's assault. If you spit on a cop, that's assaulting a police officer, that's a really serious charge. So really making sure that you're in control of your body and like moving slowly and not initiating contact with a cop, but firmly and confidently saying, I have a right to remain silent. I don't consent to a search. I want to talk to my attorney. Let me see your warrant. Can you talk a little bit about the fake warrants that sometimes get thrown around, the ones that aren't signed, stuff, stuff like that? And what the difference between like an administrative warrant and the other kinds. I don't, I'm not, I don't know these things really. Okay. So a warrant is one of the, um, one of the ways that cops can arrest you or search your stuff, like take your stuff and go through it or arrest you. The standards um, are pretty much equivalent for like what cops need in order to take your body as for what they need to take your stuff. So if I'm getting arrested, a cop um, needs to either have probable cause that I've committed a crime or an arrest warrant. And if I'm getting arrested by a warrant, I'm going to want to see the warrant. I'm going to going to be like, hey, can I see that? Um, and there's different rules state by state. And, um, you know, I can't give specific legal advice to every single state. So you should check for the laws in the state that you spend the most time in or do the most crime in. Um, to see like what the warrant requirements are as to whether they are legally obligated to produce it right away. Sometimes they get, you know, like 24 hours before they actually have to show you a warrant. Um, 
But if uh, if you're getting arrested and they say it's by warrant, um, ask to see it. And then look, is it signed by a judge? Is it recent? So within 10 days, um, is it specific? Like, does it say your name on it? If there's an address on it, is the address correct? Um, if it's a search warrant, like what, what are they looking for and where are they allowed to look for it? Generally, it's got to be pretty specific. Like you're not going to see a search warrant that's like, we get to search this whole apartment complex um, for whatever we want. It's going to be like, we're looking for this specific thing in this specific room or set of rooms of this specific address. Um, if they're searching for a human being, they should not be looking through your silverware drawer, like that kind of thing, really holding them to that. Um, and if, so say for example, it is a, a warrant and someone, you know, is knocking on your door, like you want to step outside um, when you're looking at the warrant and go through it with them on the porch. Um, like really getting clear, like looking through the warrant, taking your time, take a deep breath before you let them into your house um, based on that warrant, because it's a lot, it's a lot more stressful when they're in your house to be like kind of quibbling over the parameters. Um, and there's also just this, like this thing called the plain view doctrine, where if there's something within the plain view um, or plain smell, so if they can plainly see or smell something that is, they are going to say is illegal, um, they can go after it without a warrant. And it's kind of like where it's like a stepping stone, like where they get to lawfully, whatever they can see from that lawful location, they can get a bit farther. So if like they can see something, um, they can get to it. And then if they can see something else from there, they can get to that. And so you really want to try to like contain them as much as possible, as early on as possible. What you're saying about the administrative warrants applies most frequently in the context of ICE. So immigration authorities, ICE is the like the one that does the work in the interior of the borders. Um, and they have I-200 and I-205 administrative warrants that are not signed by a judge. They have like stacks of them in the back of their ICE vehicles that they just fill out whenever they want. So if you see I-200 or I-205 um, and that's like presented to you by an ICE officer, check and make sure because there's probably not a judge's signature. And if there's not a judge's signature, then it doesn't surpass the um, standard in the Fourth Amendment for like a warrant overriding these concerns of privacy and like protection. So really pushing back if you see that warrant, um, knowing that again, with immigration court, the standards are different. So you wanna prevent that warrant from being used rather than later trying to claim that the warrant wasn't valid in a court because the court's gonna be um, a lot harder to get that thrown out than say if you were, um, if there was a search based on an invalid warrant that then led to a case in traditional settler criminal court. One thing that Kira reminded me of talking about plain smell that I think is really important when we're talking about legal self-defense is the murky area of law around cannabis and hemp and marijuana, right? Cannabis is a plant and depending on how much Delta 9 THC is in the plant, it might be deemed hemp, which is not illegal under the farm bill that was passed in 2018, or it might be marijuana, which is still federal contraband. And states also vary wildly on what is still criminal, what is a civil citation, but is technically no longer a crime, and what is fully legal, but is just regulated. 
And the reason that this is so important is because for such a long time, cannabis was highly criminalized at the federal level, um, including hemp and Delta eight and all of these other, you know, uh, things that are now entering the realm of like pseudo legality or total legality. And because cannabis has a smell, law enforcement has really exploited marijuana smell as a way to, as Kira describes, stepping stone their way into violating people's rights or expanding the legal authority that they have to seize people and search people and search vehicles and search homes. And so, you know, smells are really, really difficult to undermine, right? It's really hard to prove that an officer is lying about a smell. And we're also in a situation where officers may smell cannabis that is actually legal cannabis, but they're describing it as, oh, I can somehow, you know, I've got like a Superman nose and I can tell that this is Delta nine cannabis and not Delta eight. And based on that smell, I'm going to search your car. And the courts are a mess right now, an absolute mess because judges don't know what to do about this because it's very obvious that a large amount of cannabis is no longer contraband, but courts are very, very hesitant to take away what has been a humongous tool for law enforcement to intrude on people's lives. And so at this point, even though the legal status of cannabis is ever-changing and is becoming more and more a valid thing that we recognize as a health product, as a boon to our economy, as you know, all of these different, as a medicine, it is still often criminalized and used as a tool by law enforcement. And so ways that you might want to think about protecting yourself are getting a medical marijuana card, if that's something that's available to you as an option, that can be super, super helpful. Um, and also just being really careful about making sure that you're not in a situation where police are going to be able to claim that they smell contraband marijuana and then use that as a way to search you, um, your pockets, or your vehicle especially. When Kira was talking about asserting your rights. I think it's also really important to keep in mind that especially once you're detained, law enforcement will often continue to ask for things that they do not have a right to get without your consent, even after you've said no. And the law in different situations actually allows them to do that sometimes after like a certain waiting period, or sometimes if it's like, a waiting period and a different officer makes the ask, right? The law ties itself in knots trying to say that, you know, law enforcement can do these things to intrude on your rights. And that's why I think it is so important to keep in mind what Kira is saying about police being able to lie, police being able to put pressure on you, and to make sure that you're standing strong in asserting your rights, even if it's in a gentle way, even if it's in, in a way that is 
as least threatening as you can possibly be in that situation, you want to remember that police are going to continue pushing you, especially if you're detained, especially if you're detained in a jail, and you do still have a right to continue saying, I have not changed my mind. I would like to speak to a lawyer. I don't want to talk to you. I do not consent to this search. Just because the police officer asks you or a different police officer asks you or a third police officer asks you and makes a bunch of promises on if you just consent to this, you're going to be able to get out of jail. 10 out of 10 times, the best advice is to reassert your rights. What What are you saying that they might ask you for uh, to, to talk to them, your blood, your soul, you know? Yeah, I would say most commonly. Um, in situations of like traffic stops where people are pulled over in a car, you'll often see it with requests to search um, or requests to get out of the vehicle when you don't have to get out of the vehicle. Um, and they'll say things like, look, you, we can make this hard or we can make this easy. Either I'm going to take all this time and go get a warrant and search your car, or you can just give me consent, right? That is a great situation where you can still remind the police officer, hey, I understand that I'm still not consenting to a search of my vehicle. And I would say half of the time you'll have called that police officer's bluff, maybe even more, and they're not going to get a warrant and they might not even have a basis to get a warrant. And they likely know that. And they're, if you reassert your rights enough, they will have to just let you go. Another common situation is when someone is detained in jail Oftentimes you'll see a situation where police keep coming back to them to try and get them to talk about the allegations. And that, again, is a situation where you'll see police even say, look, if you talk, I can I can let the prosecutor know or I can let the judge know that you were forthcoming, that you wanted to do the right thing, that, you, that you're a good person. And that is a manipulative tool and a, a blatant lie that they are trying to use to convince you to give up the rights that you do not have to give up. And I've seen I've seen many, many a situation where somebody fell for that, understandably so, right? This is a deeply coercive situation, a deeply violent situation. And somebody gives in and they say, okay, fine, I'll talk to you. And they talk to the police officer and now the police have probable cause to actually arrest them and keep them detained for a long period of time. Whereas if that person had never talked at all, they would have had to release that person within a matter of hours. And that coercion, I want to note, can get really, really disturbing. I've seen situations where people have, have talked about people's children and, and brought that into the fray and said, look, you know, talk to me and, and we can work something out and we can get you out of here so that you can be with your kids so your kids don't get sent to CPS. You know, you talking to that police officer is not going to be the difference between whether your kids are processed through the CPS system or not. And that system is violent and horrible and coercive, but I have never seen a situation where talking to a police officer and giving up your rights changed what was going to happen in a related CPS case. It's just a manipulation tool and a deeply coercive and violent one that police use. Uh, you, you said you might not have 
you might have the right to stay in your car. When do the police have the right to ask you to step out of your car in a traffic stop? I think that probably varies by state to state. Would you agree, Kira? Yeah, I was wondering about that too. I think that there's like when they have the right and then there's like when they're going to flip a switch and get like scary violent if you resist. And that the violence to me is like the primary concern and the legal right, the secondary concern. Um, So I don't actually know any of the state specific standards, but I always advise people to just like, if that is the situation, like say, hey, like I'm not resisting, um, I'm not consenting to anything, but I wanna know like, what's your basis for asking me to leave the car? Um, and really at, at that moment, take a ginormous deep breath and like lean as hard as you possibly can into those de-escalation skills. Um, in particular, if like just cops around pulling cars over, like that's one of the situations where they are at their most prone to violence and they're most reactive. So like all of the tips and tricks that we know, like if you're moving your hands at all from the steering wheel, like announcing it beforehand, that kind of thing, and just like really keep them on the steering wheel, you know, turning in saying, hey, like, uh, I'm not resisting. I'm prepared to comply with lawful orders. I'm not consenting to any searches um, of my person or of this vehicle. I just I want to know what the legal basis is for that request before I before I do anything, something like that, and just see what they say. Like they might just start screaming, and at that point, you know, you just kind of do what you need to do to stay safe. I don't know, Claire, what you have. Well, I would just note that there's there's a floor um, where police, if they don't have a certain amount of suspicion, they don't have a lawful basis to order you out of a vehicle. They don't have a basis to order you out. Um, But in terms of exactly what information they need to have in order to justify that, that would be what varies from state to state because there's not, there, there obviously is like a uniform federal constitutional right that overarches everything, but the state courts end up interpreting things differently, both with respect to the federal constitution and their respective state constitutions. So at the end of the day, I agree with Kira. I think it is most important to get information, to let the police officer know that you are trying to assert your rights, but that you're not going to resist them. So questions like, do I have to get out of my car? I would prefer to stay here. I don't feel comfortable getting out of my car. And the police officer can say, yes, you need to get out of the car or no, you don't need to get out of the car. And at that point, you've been directed to do something by law enforcement. And so if the the police officer says, yes, you do need to get out of your car. At that point, you can say something like, okay, I'm not consenting to this, but I will follow your orders. And you get out of the car and, and continue sort of with that process. And what what is your opinion about if they ask you to get out of the car, locking your doors behind you? That's a really good question, Marina. I would say I don't think that there would be a problem with that unless there's a situation where the police officer is claiming that they have a right to search your vehicle right? If the police officer is claiming that they have a right to search your vehicle, then they could claim that they have a right to force you to unlock the vehicle. 
There could also be a situation where police could construe your behavior as suspicious in itself, right? So one of the things that can be really tricky is that police are always trying to to build the suspicious clues that they have into reasonable suspicion or probable cause. And it can be really ridiculous the way that they piece these little things together and claim, in my training and experience, this was suspicious, right? And so something like locking your car door as you exit could be something a police officer claims is suspicious. Just the same way that in certain circumstances, police can claim that if they tell you that you're free to leave, but you then run away from them, they might say, oh, that was suspicious. So then I continue to surveil this person or, you know, what have you, right? So it's really hard to say. And again, Kira and I are not barred in every state. And so we definitely can't give legal advice as to how like different state courts might be interpreting this. But just in a general like legal self-defense um, way, it's just important to keep in mind that as you're asserting your rights, there might be situations where police are trying to manipulate your assertion of rights in a way that justifies further intrusion. I would also just, I would be really careful, especially depending on like identity and if you're alone and if it's dark out, just like, and like, you know, if your keys, are, if you had gotten out of the car, you put your keys in your pocket, like reaching in your pocket, um, like movements with small little objects, like just the safety concerns of that is not at all a legal consideration. I just would, I would be nervous for someone who's like kind of making a surreptitious reach into their pocket. Um, but that's a really interesting question. Do we, it might make sense to kind of jump into this categorization of the three levels of police interaction and then to, to explore this more from that perspective. Um, so there's general questioning, there's detaining and arrest. And I think that getting asked out of your car is like somewhere between detaining and arrest, that second and third level. Claire, do you wanna take these ones? Sure. So the first level of a police interaction is general questioning, where a police officer is just coming up to somebody and asking them questions. And the way to know if you're in a situation where it's just general questioning and you have no obligation to stay and no obligation to continue interacting with this police officer is to ask, am I being detained or am I free to leave? Um, and if the police officer tells you that you're free to leave, generally my best legal advice is get out of there. But if the police officer says that you are being detained, the next question is, are you at level two or level three? A level, level two detention is where the police officer has reasonable suspicion, that's the legal term, to believe there might be some sort of criminal activity going on. And they don't have the right to fully arrest you, but they do have the right to detain you in order to investigate. And that is when it's really important to assert your rights to try to avoid moving from a level two to a level three. Because when you're at a level two, there are two different ways that it can go. Either the police officer's suspicions are going to grow into an amount that justifies them fully arresting you, 
or their suspicions will not grow or they will be dispelled. And at a certain point, they have to just let you go. Um, and then, of course, if you are at level three, that's the stage where you're being arrested, where the police officers are obligated to read your, your rights before they question you, although in practice, they often don't do that. And where it becomes, again, so important to assert your rights, to let them know that you are remaining silent and that you do want to speak to a lawyer. Is there anything you want to add to that, Kira? I don't think so. I guess, yeah, that's basically it. And also keeping in mind, too, when you're being detained, it's not always information about you that they want. Um, so all of these like general questioning, it might not be your potential criminal activity that they're questioning you about, um, but that these little keys that they need to access these different levels have to be about you. So like if I film somebody um, punching someone else and the cop can't take my phone on the basis of probable cause that a crime generally occurred that I filmed, like I have to be the one who the cop has probable cause on in order for them to take my stuff. Um, it has to be a reasonable suspicion about my involvement in criminal activity for them to detain me, but that might not actually be me that they're like trying to get the next level of information about. So just kind of always being like wary of those traps and wary of the ways that law enforcement pits us against each other. How much can they do to you if they, if they consider you a material witness or something like that? Like if I witnessed a crime um, or they think I did, they could subpoena me to appear in a court process. Um, they could, uh, you know, go get some paperwork basically that requires my participation. Um, but they can't in that moment use any kind of like probable cause for immediate detention arrest or like seizure of property it requires going away getting paperwork coming back so they can't if, if say you saw a scuffle and you say i, I don't want to talk to you they can't do they can't uh, arrest you and take you in and hold you because they want your testimony correct like this happens all the time in my hometown of windsor vermont the cops get really pissed about hearing fireworks and want to use that as an excuse to like profile the folks on the street where I um, used to live. Like that's just this neighborhood that the cops are always going after folks for whatever reason, usually like classism. Um, and they'll come up and they'll be like, hey, did you hear fireworks? Or like, hey, are you bothered by those noises down the street? And it's like they want me to say yes so that they can then go down the street and use my voluntary statement that I'm bothered by the fireworks or that I know that there's fireworks to then go harass my neighbors. And if it's like me on the porch of my own home, like, and I feel comfortable in that setting that I like am not the one being targeted, like that might be the time where I take the liberty to tell them to go fuck themselves. Um, because it's like putting that wall up to keep my neighbors safe because it's really none of those cops business. But if I were to say, yeah, uh, sure, I heard fireworks, like, they've been generally questioning me and I've given them the key to go detain or arrest my neighbors down the street. Um, but I can just say, I'm not talking to you. Um, and then they're, you know, required at that point to leave me alone. Um, if you do get some sort of paperwork or like a business card of a law enforcement or a detective on your door, um, asking you to provide information about someone else's crime, that's a really great opportunity to take a deep breath say that you don't want to talk to them 
and then find an attorney to be like, hey, I don't want to provide this information. Like, can you help me get through this without having to do that? How much can they compel you? That's a, I mean, it, I would reflect back on our grand jury conversation we had with Sandy. Um, they can do a lot. I mean, they're coercive. They have the whole might of the state behind them. Like it is unlawful to like, you know, resist a, um, whatever it would be like a subpoena. Um, but like, they're going to try to trick you first. Like there's the easy way and the hard way. And the easy way is just voluntarily giving information up. The hard way is making them get all the paperwork so that you've got something in front of you saying you're legally obligated to come talk to them. Um, and even then, like we talked about with Sandy, um, there's ways to resist that. And like, that can be a really important and powerful thing, but like they can put you in jail for refusing to rat other people out. Um, and that's like the really extreme measure. The other measure is they'll just harass you and like knock on your door a lot and leave your, their business card and like go to your workplace um, which is why relationships keep us safe, right? And like having these conversations about legal self-defense with our housemates, having them with our coworkers, having them with like the people in our whole community. I saw this amazing video on the internet today of a principal who refused to let these cops um, come into the school to pull a student out. And he was just like, I'm so sorry, it's our policy. I can't let you in and did the like asserted the right in a really benign way, but it was so powerful. And it was just like, oh, if that's the policy that like that principal understands that law enforcement does not mean his students are safer, but actually like that they're in more danger. And it's just like, not here, like not, not in this school and, and stopped them at the door. Like we all stay safer and it normalize it if that is a policy. And like, we kind of put the walls up together. I wish more principals were like that. I'm, I'm sick of, uh, of, you know, schools with their own, uh, special school cops that go and beat up, uh, beat up kids who don't uh, obey the teachers, you know, wish more principals were like that. Yeah, definitely. So it might be helpful to just talk through how these each, three levels each apply in different kind of common scenarios. So if you think about one scenario, you're a pedestrian out in the general public and uh, cops come up to you and they start talking to you, you can kind of assume you're starting at general questioning. And like Claire was saying, just try to get out of it. Um, so just asking if you're free to go or if you're being detained and if you're not being detained, leaving safely, um, like Claire was saying, running away, even though legally you should be able to do that, isn't always safe and might give them a pretext to just like, you know, pull some imaginative, like legalese out of thin air and justify it later in court to say that you're suspicious because you're running. So walking, don't push, don't run, um, make the eye contact that feels like the best based on your gut and your identity. Um, if you are being detained, then you can ask why. You can ask what reasonable suspicion do you have? Um, there's a bunch of states that have stop and ID laws. So the stop and ID law is, um, like if you live in a state that has that law, there might be specific requirements about having to provide information, even if you're just being detained. Uh, so if you live in Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, is MO Missouri? Yes, I think so. Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Mexico, North Dakota, Ohio, Rhode Island, Utah, Vermont, or Wisconsin. You should look up the state-specific law to figure Vir out. Vir Virginia is a stop and identify law. That's one thing I know. Oh, and Virginia. Really, any state. 
look up the state that you spend time in or do crime in and check and see what the stop and ID law is because some states, if you're being detained, you have to provide certain information. Um, and while you're being detained, the goal is just to not give them grounds to escalate. So using your best de-escalation practices, um, wait them out and just remember your key phrases. I have a right to remain silent. I want to talk to an attorney. I do not consent to a search. And you can add in there, I'm not physically resisting. Um, they might do what's called like a Terry stop or if they can kind of, um, they can say that you have like, they're worried for safety or something. Like they can just, cops can just say, I had a safety concern and like try to get away with doing whatever they want. So they might pat you down um, when you're being detained. They might try to kind of go through like your pockets and you can say like, hey, I'm not consenting to a search. I'm not resisting just to try to really keep them to a pat down and nothing more invasive than that. Um, but other than that, really, you're just trying to not let the lies that they're going to be saying or the manipulation like worm into your head. Um, really just trying to, to wait them out understanding that the best thing you can do is to just not give them more of a foothold and that talking, even if you're not incriminating yourself, you're giving them information about you to figure out how to better manipulate you. So really just like not engaging with any kind of questioning. Um, if you have friends around you who can stay and witness and film, if you're comfortable with that, that's always a good thing. When you enumerate, when you like articulate your rights to be really loud and clear so that you can have witnesses hear that, is always a good thing if you can manage that. Um, and if they're like asking for your name um, and you wanna give them that, like it's okay to give them that, really trying to minimize um, the information beyond that that we give them. Like it's kind of a, it's kind of a judgment call in that moment, whether like just giving them your name, especially if you're in one of these stop and ID states, like that could be a good way to just be like, okay, I'm giving you that, but nothing else. And remembering that if you, if you talk after you've exerted your right to remain silent, you have to reassert it. Um, it's like this little switch. And as soon as you say something, even if it's just one little thing that flips the switch and you have to rearticulate, I'm going back to being silent. I have a right to remain silent. I remember a situation where uh, a guy fell down drunk on the sidewalk and, um, you know, I was there to try, I was trying to take care of him and somebody had called the, uh, 911 the paramedics got there first and then then one of the uh <clears throat> local cops got there and he got in between the the uh paramedics saying he had to he had to pat the guy down for the the paramedics safety and this this guy he, he would just seem to be interested in touching the guy's privates and that's all it would what it seemed to be is there any defense against stuff like that? Oftentimes there is, but again, the defense to something like that is going to be hashed out among lawyers and litigants in a court before a judge. And that sounds like really egregious and inappropriate and illegal and violent behavior by the police. But, you know, again, in the moment, like, police do what they're going to do. And then lawyers get to argue about constitutionality later. Yeah. I don't think the guy uh, is going to object. He was, he was basically in under anesthesia at the time. Yeah. That's such a disturbing example of how police can take advantage of 
what Kira referenced, which is like a welfare check. Um, when you're calling police or when police are getting involved, um, even if the basis is not alleged crime, but is to quote unquote, check the welfare of somebody, oftentimes they still are looking for those little building blocks to get themselves to a place where they can detain people, question people, search people, search places, search items or arrest somebody. And I think that example is just a really heartbreaking, but very, very common thing that, that law enforcement does. Yeah, there was a case I was investigating in uh, Morrisville. Um, this, per this woman was suicidal and some friend she was FaceTiming with called, the, called a welfare check on her. State police came and she told them to get the fuck out of there. And, you know, I have the whole transcript of the, uh, the interaction and uh, she's like, fuck, fuck off. I, I don't want you coming in here. And all the windows were covered. And she was very clearly very, very drunk. And the police handcuffed her for her own safety, then went into her house and saw a gun. And it was a, it was a whole federal firearms prosecution against this person who's a former soldier. She won the case because on Fourth Amendment, thankfully. No, actually, she didn't win the case. The federal prosecutors dropped the case. But I think it was a Fourth Amendment thing. But it was it was a very egregious abuse of um, a welfare check. Yeah, unfortunately, I think those things happen every day all over the country. So I guess moving on to something that's sort of similar to detention on the street is getting pulled over in a car. When you're getting pulled over in a car, just like an interaction on the street, you might not be sure if you're being detained or not. And so it's always a good idea to ask. And generally, you want to make sure that you're avoiding giving them the building blocks that will allow them to escalate the situation further. So generally, the, the best like legal advice, but again, subject to everybody's personal experiences and, and like what you're comfortable with. But generally, like you want to have your license and registration ready. You want to have your hands on the steering wheel. You don't want to be like reaching into pockets or doing reaching into the console or the glove compartment where police are going to be able to claim that that made them feel threatened or claim that that was suspicious. That can justify police violence. That can justify further police intrusion. Um, you want to also keep in mind that cars are treated as much less protected entities compared to physical buildings. It's a truth that is very much rooted in the classism of the law that cars are seen as less worthy of constitutional protection than physical buildings. Uh, just as private residences that are homes that are owned by somebody are treated as less protected than a rental property um, when you look at it vis-a-vis -vis the rights of the, the person who's living there. 
But without going too far down that classism tangent, which I could talk about for a long time, it's important to note that police are often going to circle your car, they're going to look in the windows, and anything that they can see, anything that they can smell, anything that they claim they see or they smell, right? Something that they're like, you know, I saw something and I thought it could be a weapon, right? Something like a I don't know, a a BB gun, for example, that they're going to claim that is potentially an actual firearm, something like that. Or if they claim that they're smelling cannabis, that could give them a building block to further intrude and to be able to search the vehicle, to arrest you. Um, And there's also some weird Swiss cheesed case law that says if they have the right to arrest you, even if they wouldn't otherwise have the right to search the car, in some situations, your arrest might give them the ability to search the part of the car that you would be able to reach. It's sort of a convoluted case law area that we won't go into in depth here. But the important thing to keep in mind is that you want to be really mindful of being clear that you're not consenting to a search of your vehicle and that if they have a warrant, again, you want to look at it, you want to read it carefully and be mindful that um, anything that they see, anything that they claim looks suspicious, smells suspicious, or that your behavior seems suspicious to them might be separately or together enough of a building block for them to get into the vehicle. This means too, like, especially um, if you are going to a protest or an action, like something where you think people are being surveilled who are participating in that activity, keeping your doors locked, right? Because like, we've seen instances of cops um, finding an unlocked car, opening it, sticking something in the back that then they can pull you over and look through the windows and be like, oh, I see something unlawful. Like, even if they put it there, it doesn't matter. Um, and also recognizing that things might look illegal or unlawful, even if they aren't. So just trying to think like, not only like, do I have anything illegal in the car, but like, do I have anything that the cop could just like, you know, colorably say looks illegal. Um, So, you know, even if I don't have any empty cans of alcohol, if I drink a lot of seltzer or like, you know, leave my six pack of Odules in the back seat, like I just, you want to be extra careful, even with the lawful things that could give them this like construction. Um, Let's talk about a little bit of specifics for when you are going to an action or a protest and more about this state surveillance. when you are driving to or from a protest, um, that's a common time when cops will try to pull you over. Like I've been pulled over on the way back from protests all the time because maybe I didn't do anything unlawful at this event, but they want the extra chance to ask me questions about it. So they say like, oh, I'm going to pull you over. And then I'm going to say, well, where were you? Um, And we know that it takes cops like maximum, what, five minutes of following somebody to be able to find some random bullshit thing about like, oh, you didn't put your blinker on a hundred meters before this stop sign, like to make up something that they can use as the pretext for a pretext stop. So recognizing that this isn't like universally within anybody's control, but really trying to make sure that you're driving a car with registration, like proper kind of compliant with all the state laws about tags and whatnot, um, using your blinker, 
Um, you don't have drugs or um, anything in the car that even smells like cannabis um, and that you are really just trying to be like perfect, um, like held to a higher standard uh, as much as you can. And another note about um, arrestable actions too is like, <clears throat> we can't avoid a lot of legal risks, which this, this is more of an organizing point than a legal point. Um, but since so many legal risks are unavoidable given the ways that we are criminalized for our existence and our identities, when we choose to take legal risks, it's all the more important that we do that. Um, we only take legal risks if there's like a strategic reason for taking that risk. Like we don't need to take any more risks than is necessary. And we also like have to really think about like who could potentially be harmed by taking these risks and getting consent from the people around us. Like if you're going to an action and you're escalating an action where there's like a bunch of kids and families and maybe people thought it was going to be a totally chill scene. So people with like um, who are maybe out on probation or parole or people who are not documented or like otherwise, you know, just like can't get arrested, show up at an action where no one is, is trying to risk that. Um, making sure we're not escalating things in a way that blows back on other people at those kinds of actions. Um, and really like most of the considerations are the same. You don't wanna to talk to cops. Um, and like, you really just don't chit chat with cops unless you're, you know, the police liaison really specific to that role. Um, also, if you do happen to get arrested um, at a protest or another action, um, still don't talk to cops, like don't talk to cops until you have an attorney with you, ask for an attorney if you're being questioned. You can answer the basic biographical information, like what could be found on a driver's license. Um, but, you know, going much more beyond that, they might ask you like, where did you grow up? Like, ask you about the action. They might ask you like, what you do for a living, how much money you make, like, you can fill out a piece of paper like to show your indigency to try to get a public defender and that can be a good thing to do but like generally you don't need to tell the cops like your personal day-to-day -day life info um also it's important to think about uh surveillance inside the jail um assume that there's like ears whether those are human beings who have been paid to or like given you know cooperating plea deals to get you to talk or to overhear your conversations or like electronic bugs on phone lines or just anywhere cameras all like just everything you say in a jail um you know try not to say anything that's sensitive or incriminating um getting arrested is like terrifying and stressful and there's a huge adrenaline component to actions or to just like getting arrested in general and so also keeping in mind like when you crash from that adrenaline high like everyone's body is different and this might not be a universal experience but there is a tendency when you're like in a really intense situation, you have a huge adrenaline rush and then you crash to be like kind of weird and like chatty and you maybe are like wanting to process or debrief because everything's so intense and then you're in that like descending action kind of adrenaline state. So like all the more important to really just make sure you're not debriefing the thing that got you arrested. You're not talking about who planned it. You don't ever want to say like, reference the leaders or organizers or people like that we then put targets on their backs because we've like highlighted them for the state. Um, I have a, a dear friend who likes to talk about most medium favorite things as a post-arrest jail conversation. So um, like you'll see in discovery reports, like 
he's going around asking everyone what their most medium favorite bird is because he knows he's being eavesdropped on in jail. And like, that's the conversation that's safe and like friendly. Um, and don't sign anything. Don't sign things without a lawyer. What about I, pro- property, uh, really property stuff? Anytime you get arrested, everything that's on your person, um, gets turned into police custody. So something that, um, Claire is good about reminding folks is like, it's a lot harder for a cop to force you to type out a passcode than to force your thumb on your phone. Like making sure your biometrics are disabled and it's like a strong password. Also making sure that your notifications don't pop up and display who's texting you and what the contents of those messages are because um, they get all your stuff. If you get arrested, they get all your stuff. If you bought the supplies for this action, like you bought the banner and the paint, like don't keep the receipts in your pocket. Reimbursements are cool, but um, the cops don't need to see who's buying what. Yeah, I try to tell people don't bring your cell phone to uh, to an action, but people are so addicted to their their cell phones that they never they never listen to me. I, I mean, I I go to the cell phones stay behind when I go to go to, across the border. I don't I don't uh, carry them. Yeah, I think it's important to remember too that the process of being arrested and then processed into the jail is a deeply violent and often traumatic experience where people are strip searched, they are forced to squat and cough, their clothes are taken from them, they are given like weird brown underwear and an orange jumpsuit most often. Um, And there's not like an exception for protesters. Sometimes there's this weird dichotomy that I think like comes from a place of privilege, right? Where some protesters have this misconception that they are different from the other people that are being arrested and processed through the jail. And first, like if that is sort of a reaction that you have, I really encourage you to like think about your politics and to do research on abolition and to understand how these systems of policing and criminalization work. Um, Because the truth of the matter is like protesters are no different from any other person who's being criminalized and processed by the state. And they are going to be treated oftentimes um, just as violently. Although sometimes, of course, because of different forms of privilege, economic privilege, racial privilege, skin privilege, like obviously that might impact how the courts deal with you. But just to like also be very clear with what Kira is saying about jail surveillance, every phone call that you make from the jail is recorded. And that recording gets listened to by police And if they think that it is something that can be used against you or used against anyone else, they will send that to the prosecutor and the prosecutor will listen to it and they will use it against you in a criminal case if they can. And also there are informants in the jail. There are people in the jail who, because of the violence that they are experiencing, they are looking to inform as a way to improve their own situation. And there are also undercover officers who are at the jail posing as people who are detained, who are looking to get information. 
And the reality is, obviously, we don't, in movement spaces, we don't like to think that our comrades might actually be informants. But the reality is, sometimes that is the case. And if you're in a situation, especially if you're at the jail, where somebody is trying to get you to talk, alarm bells should go off in your head. Because either this person has forgotten their good movement skills, and they just need a friendly reminder from you, or they are a very, very dangerous person who is trying to get information from you to give to the state. And in either situation, you don't want to talk to them about the information, right? You either want to shut it down because they're an informant, or you want to politely remind them like, hey, uh, we shouldn't talk about this, like hashtag good security culture, in which case they will thank you for giving them a friendly reminder in a stressful situation. So is that, is this it? <laughs> I think we've got one more. We could okay. Culture. Okay. Right. Or I don't know. No, it's fine. That's fine. Really quick. Do law enforcement at your house. Um, what do you think, Claire? Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked a lot about law enforcement at your house, but maybe one thing to just add is try not to open the door. Like that is one of the best strategies. Even if if they say that they have a warrant, you can ask them to like slip it under the door or put it through a mail slot if you have one. Like try to find a way to, and Kira mentioned, you can try to slip out to the porch so that they're not in your house while you're reviewing the warrant. You should be able to review the warrant. Um, obviously there's, there's something that I think a lot of people have heard about in the news because they're so violent and scary, but there are things called no-knock warrants. Some places have started to make those illegal be because I think a lot of people recognize how dangerous and violent they are. Um, but most often, if you're in a situation where you are engaging with the police about a warrant and they haven't just busted through the door, you should have an opportunity to review the warrant before you open it. Um, and I, I would say that that's probably the only thing I would add about law enforcement at your house. I don't know if you have other thoughts, Kira. I think that's it. I guess just like emphasizing once more, talking to your housemates about this stuff because anybody who has lawful access to that home can be like sure come on in um or even people who don't have lawful access to that home if the cops like oh this person seems like they do um you know they're just like invited in and once they're in that's consent even if you know they're looking for stuff to incriminate you and your housemates the one that opened the door um so just really trying to like share this knowledge like to really like help keep each other safe and it can be really scary when it happens like again we're talking about this kind of academically or theoretically um but in the actual moment when you are faced with somebody who is in uniform has a gun um and is trained to make you feel afraid and wrong like it's it's terrifying so practicing this even like even with your friends like getting your friend to pretend to be a cop and doing role plays can actually be like a really good way to get halfway, you know, half halfway experience without like totally subjecting yourself to the trauma of like actually dealing with a cop. And a lot of people, I mean, like people have had cop interactions before now, depending on um, who you are and like what you do, but 
really practicing as much as possible to get it muscle memory. There's some great videos on YouTube if you look up like know your rights or like cops at your door or cops in the car, like looking up different scenarios that you might picture yourself in. So you get an idea of like, what do they actually kind of say? What are the things that might happen? Um, and just trying to get as familiar as possible. And then also to prepare for like the unexpected or to realize that you're going to be in a situation where you're like, I don't actually know what my rights are in this specific hypothetical. So I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to say, with all due respect, I'm not resisting, but I am not consenting and I have a right to remain silent and I want a lawyer. And like, you know, that might not be the perfect thing to say in that moment, but that's a great place to start. It feels like this podcast is sort of how many times can we say don't talk to cops? That's always my goal to slip that into conversations as much as possible. And also just how important relationships are, right? All of this boils down to maybe you and your friends and comrades and family members and loved ones Instead of playing charades, you want to do some legal self-defense role play on a Friday night after a potluck dinner. That sounds like a great time to me. (laughs) Yeah, I I did this with my mom once and was like, okay, mom, like, I'm going to pretend to be a cop. What are you going to do? And she was like, ah, and like, got really like, mom, like, it's me. You raised me like, um, but it really like a, a good role play cop scenario, like really actually can present a realistic sense of like panic in people um not that we want to like put our friends and loved ones in that situation but just to say like it's ultimately safer for everyone if we do put this wall up together because like Claire was saying like some people might say I don't have anything to hide but it's like maybe you have the privilege of complying with the laws that criminalize blackness and poverty and um you know queerness and all these other things but like not everyone does um and as laws get more and more um, just like overtly fascist, you know, we're just, we're seeing like an increase in um, surveillance over everybody with now these new laws criminalizing um, gender affirming care for kids and criminalizing abortion and all of these things. It's like the interstate, like massive resource flooded militarized surveillance regime of a police state that we all live in. Like, I don't know, I don't want to be alarmist because um, I think the flip side of that is like the hope that resilience and relationships and resistance are coming together to build, to fight all of that. But it is really just like, we all know someone who is being targeted for something, if not us ourselves directly. So like we all, this is relevant for everyone. Cops don't keep us safe. We keep us safe, but only if we're actively taking measures to do so. Excellent. And at some later point, I'd like to have a discussion of of tactics that we can try to short circuit um, states like Texas um, criminalizing people beyond their borders. Um, I don't think tonight is the night to do that, but I, I, that is something that I had an earlier podcast and Washington state has said they're not gonna send extradite anyone to Texas for uh, reproductive stuff though I don't I don't really have much belief that police will respect the law in that case but I think that's when lawyers know more we should have a discussion on these lines what to do if your repressive state 
that you left tries to bring you back for transitioning, for having taking hormones or having your kid uh, taken care of. I think that's something we can discuss at a later point. Yeah, we covered a lot tonight. Thanks so much for having us. Excellent. This has been VMN Volume 3, Episode 13. Thank you very much.